This week's TribCast is sponsored by Texas State Technical College has Texas covered with 10 campuses across the state and now with 20 new 100% online programs, students can learn the skills necessary to start a great new career. Learn more at tstc.edu. And the Beer Alliance of Texas. Direct-to-consumer sales increases access and abuse of alcoholic beverages for children and teenagers. Find out more at beeralliance.com. Hello and welcome to the Texas Tribune TribCast for March 11th, 2022. My name is Matthew Watkins, new, uh, Managing Editor of News and Politics for the Texas Tribune. And this week I am joined by our women's health reporter, Eleanor Klibanoff. Hey, Eleanor. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. And our reporting fellow, Sneha Day. Hi, well, thanks for having me. Hi, yeah. Um, great to have you all both here. Both of you have been doing... Um, working very hard the last couple of weeks and, and doing some excellent coverage on what will be the main topic of conversation today. The Governor Greg Abbott's kind of directive to uh, state authorities to investigate the families of transgender children for uh, child abuse. Uh, this has been something that has been kind of in the news for a couple of weeks. Um, basically, Abbott issued a direct issued this directive during the early voting period of the March primary. We're now, you know, about 10 days past the primary period. But both of y'all have been busy today covering this. Eleanor covering a court hearing in which lawyers are trying to get a statewide injunction blocking kind of CPS investigations into these families. Sneha, you have been at the Department of Family and Protective Services where a public hearing is going on and you know dozens of people uh, testifying, many kind of expressing the fear and concern they have about this order. But I wanna just stop and take a step back and kind of explain to people what's happening here. I'm gonna go to Eleanor, you first. You know, this started, I guess, first with a opinion issued by the Attorney General, Ken Paxton, and then Greg Abbott kind of reacted quickly after that. Explain to us kind of the legal situation here and, and what's happening to get us to this point. Sure, yeah. So um, Attorney General Ken Paxton, like you said, issued this non-binding legal opinion, which is basically just his interpretation of state law as the, you know, as the Attorney General. And in that opinion, he equated certain types of gender affirming care with child abuse. And in this case, um, you know, gender affirming care, it can encompass a lot of things from, you know, allowing a child to sort of what we call socially transition, which might be, you know, dressing as the gender that they identify with or um, using a different name. Um, that's most of what children who um, are transgender experience um, as gender affirming care is more um, sort of non-medical procedures, um, but his opinion specifically looked at um, puberty blockers, which are a completely reversible medical treatment that um, sort of just holds off the effects of puberty uh, for a child who uh, might be experiencing gender dysphoria, um, as well as, um, you know, surgeries that are gender affirming that are very rarely used on children um, and, you know, almost never on children, you know, below you know, maybe, you know, below the age of 17, anything like that. So um, he issued this directive, or I'm sorry, he issued this uh, non-binding legal opinion, which again has no force of law. 
what escalated this was Governor Greg Abbott uh, citing that opinion, issuing this directive to, you know, his Department of Family and Protective Services, telling them to promptly and thoroughly investigate any allegations of um, uh, parents who may be giving these treatments to their children. Okay, very good. And then basically that prompted, and what we've seen, Sneha, is that you know, at least some families have reported, you know, having CPS either knocking on their door or, or in some ways instigating uh, investigations, Eleanor, including one person who was a plaintiff in the lawsuit that, that you are watching right now. I mean, what are we, what are we, how is this affecting the lives of, of, of families of transgender children right now, Seha? Yeah, yeah. So first of all, we know that there have been nine investigations um, against families with transgender children. We have seen on that front that those families have are facing that investigation. They are lawyering up, they're hiring attorneys, even folks who haven't had D DFPS show up at their door. Um, they're hiring attorneys preemptively. On the medical end, we have doctors and therapists and um, who have now been put in a tough spot, especially those who are providing this gender-affirming care who feel like they might lose their medical licenses if they continue providing this care to children. We have schools, teachers who are now afraid if they um, don't report um, to report to DFPS um, about their kids who they know are transgender and are receiving this care, they might they fear ramifications as well. We are already seeing um, some hospitals kind of respond to this directive. We had the Texas Children's um, Hospital in Houston uh, pause hormone therapy, and now um, kids are terrified. Um, I've spoken to a few, few children who um, are now not sure whether they're going to be able to get the gender-affirming care that they were going to get, whether that's um, puberty blockers or um, hormone therapy. So um, there's that fear. Um, folks who had lined up to get that care from certain doctors and hospitals and now need to try to find another plan. Yeah, and you know, and we've seen kind of a reaction among hospitals too. You mentioned uh, Texas Children's Hospital, I believe in Houston has has stopped administering this kind of care right now. Um, we also saw a uh, hospital, this I guess was back before the directive, but also a, a, a program in Dallas um, associated with uh, UT Southwestern, I believe, in which they kind of dissolved a clinic that, that focuses on providing treatment to children with uh, gender dysphoria. Uh, so, you know, a, a chilling effect on the families where, you know, like you said, uh, Eleanor and, and Sneha, you guys had an article, uh, you know, pretty soon after this came out about, you know, the fear being felt by the families, the, the hiring of lawyers, even kind of the questioning of like, is this a state where the families can feel safe or do they need to consider leaving, you know, that kind of dramatic effect. Um, you know, nine investigations is not a huge number, but the, it's being felt well beyond kind of those families that are actually being investigated. But then it also has an impact on the ability to provide this treatment. And, and Eleanor, I want to ask you a little bit before we get too far into this conversation about that treatment, right? There, uh, can, you, can you talk a little bit about why this is administered? And you, you said already, you know, the idea of irreversible things like surgeries um, are extremely rare about ch among children, but, but what kind of treatment are we seeing and, and why is it viewed as so important by the medical community to offer that treatment? Right, so most of what, uh, teenagers are receiving are puberty blockers or hormone therapy. And, um, you know, 
first of all, like all the major medical associations uh, have endorsed uh, transgender teenagers receiving this um, treatment, you know, when it's deemed appropriate. And it's important to say, you know, we talk a lot about trans kids, but like these are puberty blockers. So you can't use them until you are approaching or at or beyond puberty. So Mm -hmm. uh, we're not talking about children here. Um, uh, We're talking about minors, but we're not talking about, you know, we sometimes hear talking points about, you know, a four-year-old or a five-year-old. And that's um, not really how this plays out at all. Um, And, you know, we've talked to several families, Sneha and I, about their experience receiving this treatment. And, um, you know, it's an, it's a long process. Uh, you know, you don't just walk in and get a doctor to start uh, giving you hormone therapy. Um, you know, one child told me about the experience of going through counseling and, you know, and that was, you know, that his doctor, you know, put him, you know, they did counseling, they did family counseling, they talked about all the different ways that this could play out, you know, weighed the pros and cons. And then um, eventually he started taking testosterone. Um, and, you know, I think universally we've heard and studies show um, the really positive effect that these treatments have on young people who experience gender dys- dysphoria, which is just like the experience of feeling like, um, you know, your body is not your own, that you're not, that you're not exhibiting the gender that you, uh, you know, are, uh, or that your body does not exhibit the gender that you identify as. Um, which can be a really disorienting um, experience from, you know, what I understand, uh, you know, children of their young people have told us about, you know, your voice doesn't sound like you think it should and your body doesn't look like um, you think it should. And that's why puberty is such a big thing in this is then why puberty blockers are important is because, you know, a lot of young people maybe don't experience dysphoria or don't experience the same degree of dysphoria until they are approaching that puberty, which is when like your body starts to really look like uh, the sex you were born as. Um, and that is a real time when the mental health impacts of, um, this start to start to show up. Um, and there's really like overwhelming statistics that show that transgender young people who do not receive gender affirming care are at such extraordinary risk for suicide. Um, There was a study by the Trevor Project that showed one in two transgender um, minors had considered suicide. Um, And the studies that that have followed young people who have gotten gender affirming care showed that those numbers uh, returned to basically what um, the numbers uh, we see for young people who are not experiencing gender dysphoria. So there's a lot of talk about, you know, we just hear from a lot of young people who talk about how this treatment saved their life. Um, and it's just the fact that it's now being considered child abuse, I think for a lot of them seems pretty disconnected from the reality of how they've experienced this. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, a lot of this, you know, is a, a lot of the reasons behind this treatment, you know, is it seems to be a feeling that, you know, the rates of suicide being so high among this kind of population of children and things like that. And a fear that kind of keeping treatment away from removing that as an option to help these children, I think strikes a lot of fear into the heart of parents, aside from just kind of the message that it seems to be sending to them, you know, about, uh, you know, what the, what this means about the state or the leaders of the state and what they think about these, these kids who are growing up, you know, the, the impact of this is of course goes way beyond politics. You know, we're talking about the impact on children, on families and everything, but I think it's important to not, 
lose sight of the politics behind this, you know, given kind of how this all played out, right? You talked a little bit earlier about the um, non-binding opinion that Ken Paxton issued. That opinion was requested, you know, months earlier by someone who was at the time, uh, Matt Krauss, who was challenging Ken Paxton in the Republican primary for attorney general. He was one of kind of three at the time opponents. Krauss later dropped out um, when Louis Gohmert, another one of the, the primary challengers went in, but ultimately, this was something that he Paxton was kind of being hit with from the far right, um, you know, over the course of this primary. And then we see this opinion come out, you know, much later than most opinions do in those times. Uh, they, they chose not to expedite the, the request. And um, basically, you know, it's coming out during the early voting period, which took a lot of attention. And then the next day, Greg Abbott issues his directive. He, of course, is in his own primary race in which he was also facing intense pressure from Don Huffines, one of the um, kind of a well-funded former state senator who was also making this a big issue and had raised a lot of concerns about, you know, the information that was put on state websites about suicide prevention and how some of those resources you know, were designed to, um, you know, target, not target, they were designed to kind of help specifically LGBTQ uh, kids. And, and this was being seen as kind of a flaw by, by the hard right, by people like Don Huffines and something that, you know, could kind of, they could attack Greg Abbott on. So you see all these things playing out kind of right at the height of the political situation in a way that, you know, I think it's reasonable to wonder, you know, the some of the motivations about this. And, um, you know, of course, the the, the Republicans are the, the people who are making this decision. These decisions are saying that they have their own concerns, you know, saying this is child abuse, raising their concerns. But um, the, the timing, you know, definitely does raise eyebrows. Uh, I'm, I'm editing a story right now uh, by our Health and Human Services report, reporter, Karen Harper, about kind of the arc of Jeff Younger, who is a, a candidate for the House in uh, North Texas. And he's kind of, at, you know, self-described in this story, calls himself the tip of the spear in this fight. You know, this goes back to 2017 when there was the bathroom bill. Uh, neither of y'all were, were here working in Texas at that time, but this was you know about who what bathroom people can use and it's basically saying you need to use the bathroom of the um sex you were assigned on your birth certificate that did not go anywhere but kind of in that atmosphere that that bill did not pass at least um there was a big fight of it over in 2017 but in that atmosphere you kind of started to see jeff younger emerge his his child um is a is a transgender girl and his mother was kind of supportive in some of the gender uh, transitioning um, more social transition you know wearing dresses and things like that not receiving any kind of surgeries not receiving any kind of puberty bark blockers but he kind of became a um, a almost a hero on the right um, particularly on this wing of the party of people for for fighting this fighting it very publicly and it was really the area where you started to first see these these folks weigh in. Ken Paxton ordered an investigation or requested an investigation into that family. And our understanding is that that was the first investigation into a transgender child in this or into the family of a transgender child in the state. You had uh, Greg Abbott um, tweeting about it using the child's name um, or, you know, the or the name that was given to the child um, 
uh, at birth um, and in, in a way that kind of alarmed a lot of people, both due to the fact that um, um, in the transgender community using, you know, what they call the dead name is, is a very, uh, a kind of line you don't cross, but then also, you know, using the name of a child in a case, you know, calling to light a cu private custody battle and, and, and accusing, you know, or making, raising concerns about child abuse in a way that you would almost never do in any other circumstance. You know, these CPS investigations are kept secret kind of outside of the eyes of, of the general public um, for a reason. And, and that has been kind of the slow build. And now here we are, Jeff Younger, you know, finished second in his primary. He was two points behind the leader um, that he's now heading into a runoff and is basically making part of the number one part of his campaign, kind of making the state more aggressive in this issue. And you see that kind of arc going, you know, the way this is kind of built up over the last few years, um, I think has, has gotten us to this point. Yeah, and I think, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, if I get the details wrong, but I think it was Governor Abbott's um, sort of strategist, right? Who said yep. like, this issue is a winner. I mean, yeah. just with Republican voters. Dave Carney, um, yeah. I mean, there were yeah. some questions about whether, you know, this would kind of go away after the primary. And the day after the primary, exactly, Dave Carney said, this is a winner for us, you know, and it seemed to be the implication that was in the general election and that he seemed to kind of welcome a fight with Beto O'Rourke and the race for governor over this. Um, moving forward to November. Okay, let's uh, go ahead, Eleanor. Oh, I was just going to say that, like, and I think the Jeff Younger situation is really um, relevant because, like, a lot of we've talked to a lot of lawyers and families and experts, and like, that's often um, sort of a contentious custody battle is often how a lot of these issues do play out. Um, and some of the families we've talked to, or some of the lawyers we've talked to, you know, speculate that some of their clients have been reported um, maybe by. Um, ex-partners who are not gender affirming and, you know, a, a child abuse uh, designation can become a real big problem in a custody battle. So I think this is like a, um, a pretty common way that that would play out. Okay, let's pause for a minute and hear from our sponsors. BNSF Railway is a critical link that connects consumers with the global marketplace and plays a vital role in building and sustaining the U.S. economy. Learn more at bnsf.com. And Lone Star College has strategic relationships with industry leaders to provide robust workforce staffing. Find out more at lonestar.edu. Okay, so since we are here on Friday, I want to talk about the news of the day. Sneha, I'm going to start with you. You've been sitting through um, a public uh, meeting um, for uh, DFPS today in which you know people have kind of lined up to testify about this rule. Tell us a little bit about what you've seen and heard at that meeting. Yeah, we saw nearly 100 people testify, folks driving in from uh, Houston, driving, flying in from Washington, D.C. to kind of advocate for, for these kids. What they're saying is just that this will have such an emotional ramifications and ramifications in terms of the mental health of these children who um, are now watching this closely, watching this anti-trans legislation. And they're, they're, what they're saying is that they're seeing politicians, gov government say that they, their identity is, is, they're not affirming their identity and that's going to have emotional ramifications where um, the Trevor Project is reporting that um, they've already received a number of calls from, from kids who are having suicidal 
thoughts as a result of this directive. They're saying they're afraid that they're going to lose their medical care. Um, a lot of what that hearing is looking like that a lot of what that meeting is looking like, that public comment is um, folks who are testifying um, and reading anonymous um, anonymous test written testimonies on behalf of these children and families who are too terrified to show up themselves um, and identify themselves. We have um, eight-year-old trans girls and boys writing um, these letters to um, be read in front of DFPS. <laughs> You know, it's 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 been just personally watching this um, going from my work life to my personal life, where I have two children, and, and including one who's in third grade, and um, has had a friend who um, is um, uh, was was born uh, assigned assign male at birth, but um, has kind of lived socially as as a a girl, and the way that they met in kindergarten, and the way that no one kind of in her class and her world has ever kind of batted an eye at this at all, you know, and kind of like how it kind of just emphasizes to me the, you know, like when you see like this play out among children, it's perfectly normal. It's, they don't, you, no one is given any kind of impression that there's anything unusual or disturbing or troubling about this until the adults tell them. And it's, it's just, you know the 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 dissonance there has has really struck me just just watching this this play out um and and see these kids you know go up and talk um in 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 what must be kind of a terrifying and and you know difficult situation and, and the bravery they're they're showing in, in in that way um so eleanor let's talk about your what you've been watching today this is the court hearing this could be kind of the most important development in this, you know, uh, so far. What we're talking about here is a case in which one family sued and was able to get a Travis County judge to block the CPS investigation into them. And now we're seeing, right, whether this should be expanded, you know, this injunction should be instead of just with one case to a statewide situation. What's happening in this, this hearing today? Uh, what are you hearing from both sides? Right. So. Right. So this one family was granted a temporary restraining order. The question now is, should they get an injunction, uh, which would extend, you know, would block the investigation into them until there's a trial? And then should that injunction be for all families, um, which would block the state from even opening these investigations and would at least halt um, these nine ongoing investigations? Um, the hearing today, you know, was several hours this morning and um, it's still ongoing, but um the biggest thing so far is that they had a um, investigator for Child Protective Services testify, and she said that she has resigned um, as, a, as a result of this directive um, and raised a number of concerns um, with how these cases are being treated differently than other cases. Um, you know, that are not involving gender affirming care. Um, the biggest thing was she said, you know, basically they were not allowed to reject these um, investigations the way that they can with some other kind of investigations. Um, they have to, you know, sort of brief the general counsel on all of them. And they were told not to, um, you know, discuss these cases with their coworkers in email or text message. So basically just like not to keep written documentation of how they're handling these cases, um, which is really, she said, really different than other cases. And she said, felt very unethical. Um, 
the state argued um, that, basically argued that uh, the state has an obligation to investigate when a child is being given a controlled substance and um, that that can constitute child abuse um, or they're being given a controlled substance against their will. And, um, and the investigator agreed that that could be child abuse, but basically said, you know, very rarely in cases where that's assigned by a doctor, do we consider that to be child abuse? Um, broadly, the state based, the state's argument is that the judiciary should not be able to step in and block child abuse investigations. Um, we will see how this continues to unfold and what you know Judge Meacham decides. But based on um, the temporary restraining order she granted originally, um, the lawyers for the ACLU and Lambda Legal probably have reasons to be optimistic. This, of course, is playing out in a in Travis County, a, a Democratic judge. Um, you know, the, the attorney general already tried to appeal to block this hearing and, and was denied by a um, also Democratic controlled uh, state appeals court. But of course, the question will remain, you know, will this end up going before the state Supreme Court, where, of course, it's nine Republicans and you might kind of get a less uh, sympathetic ear from the, the people trying to block this. So uh, I think probably a lot to still play out in this case individually. Um, I think I'd be kind of remiss not to bring up, um, you know, a, another kind of development in court related to child protective services this week. Um, our colleague Reese Oxner, of course, reporting uh, late last night that a um, basically seven children who were being held in a Texas contracted facility meant to care for female foster children were basically being trafficked by the employees of that facility. It's just a kind of shocking and appalling story in which, you know, people who are under the state's care being kind of re-victimized and re, uh, you know, treated in a, in, in a way that is just horrible and everyone agrees it's horrible. And you, you hear, you know, the governor and, and everyone speaking out about the treatment of this, but it also just kind of stands to show, I mean, while we're continuing to have these investigations and, and all this concern about the alleged uh, child abuse of, of trans children, we are reminded that the state's foster care system for now generations of children, I mean, we're talking about going back to a state governor's report from 1999, which was laying out, you know, massive problems in the foster care system in which children were entering with problems and leaving even worse off because of a lack of resources, because of you know abuse and neglect within that system. And here we are, you know that was that was in 1999 when Governor, I guess I, that would have been Governor Bush, you know, convened a um, a commission to to raise the concerns about this. There's been you know a a law, federal lawsuit over this lasting for over a decade. And the problems continue to persist. They and and new, just like completely appalling, shocking, you know, frankly disgraceful allegations continue to come up. And you know, as we talk about the safety of children, I think we can't kind of ignore the fact that this state, and you know, throughout multiple administrations and multiple governments, has repeatedly failed, and not just failed, but worsened the the lives of of numerous children kind of forced you know uh, sent into the foster care system it's it's really just a you know disheartening uh kind of shameful you know storyline for our state that just continues to never 
never go away. I also, before we want to go, before we go, I want to talk about another court case, Eleanor, that you uh, wrote about today. Um, you know, as our women's health reporter, you have also spent a lot of time covering SB8, the abortion law that um, has essentially or come close to banning abortion in the state, um, at least beyond six weeks. The Supreme Court kind of dealt a final blow um, against those trying to overturn that law. Can you tell us what the Supreme Court did today? Sure, yeah. And as the, te the Texas Supreme Court has basically yes. uh, effectively shut down any chance of um, this law, this uh, law, which, you know, is sort of known colloquially as Senate Bill 8, um, basically shut down any chance the abortion providers have of blocking Senate Bill 8 through this federal court challenge. There are some other court challenges ongoing that could potentially yield more results, but this was sort of the, uh, the main uh, effort by the sort of big gun lawyers, you know, the Center for Reproductive Rights, Planned Parenthood. This was what they had to put a lot of their um, power into. It went originally to the US Supreme Court, which throughout most of their arguments, they left this one tiny little window um, open to allow the abortion providers to challenge the law and the Texas Supreme Court basically slammed that window shut today. So as for the foreseeable future, uh, Senate Bill 8, the, uh, the complete ban on abortions after about six weeks of pregnancy will remain in effect in Texas. Um, meaning as many people are saying, you know, on Twitter, you know, we are at more than six months of basically not having access to uh, the Roe v. Wade constitutional protection for abortion in Texas with no uh, relief in sight. And we should say, you know, this is also the same week, last week or this week, um, that Idaho passed a Senate Bill 8 style uh, law through their legislature. I believe Missouri has passed it through their Senate and it just has to pass through the House now where it's expected to pass. So it's really a green light for states that wanna pass these kind of laws to, to do so. And, you know, and we are looking also, of course, at the, the U.S. Supreme Court possibly weighing in on the Mississippi case, which could kind of, you know, further kind of uh, defang or, you know, even get rid of kind of the precedent that was set by Roe v. Wade. So uh, a, a big victory by, you know, opponents of, of abortion who have been fighting for, you know, moves like this for a very long time and possibly, uh, you know, the first of 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 you know, several that could be, could kind of change the, you know, the way that abortion jurisprudence is, is approached in this, in, in the country for, for a long time here. Yeah, we are, we are in all likelihood sort of in the last six months of Roe v. Wade in um, United States. And the question is just, will Texas, um, is Texas leading the way on both on this private enforcement mechanism that will sort of be a complement to the public enforcement mechanism, which will manage to effectively eliminate abortion access in many states. Other states are moving in the opposite direction to constitutionally protect um, abortion. Yep. So two Americas. All right. Well, that um, I think takes makes up a, all the time we have for today. Thank you, Sneha. Thank you, Eleanor. Thank you to our producer, Justin, and thank you to our sponsors, Texas State Technical College, the Beer Alliance of Texas, BNSF Railway, and Lone Star College. We'll talk to you all next week. Do